0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 136. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word as it's found in Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, his love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, his love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, His love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures forever. He remembered us in our low estate, his love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies, his love endures forever. He gives food to every creature, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, his love endures forever. And may the reading and preaching of the Lord's word be a blessing to each one of us. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would sweeten this part of your word in our hearts and in our minds, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life praying in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, I don't know much about them, but fossils are fascinating. Uh, Fossils tell us something about the way things used to be. Now, I don't have great experience with fossils, but I have a couple of memorable ones. The day that my wife, Adele, and I graduated from college in 1976, (laughs) um, we left for a trip to Israel. Uh, It was a a high-end trip. We stayed in five-star youth hostels as our best accommodations, Sometimes we slept under the stars. But one experience that we had early on is we went down into the Dead Sea Valley. Uh, The the Dead Sea is uh, at the surface 1,200 feet above sea level. And there are these uh, cliffs on both sides of the Jordan Rift Valley. And we climbed up them fairly high, and as high as we climbed, we found fossils, fossils of marine life, and they were saltwater fossils back in the day, at the same time when Florida was underwater, and the Gulf of Mexico and the Gulf of Aqaba covered the Plain States, and so Colorado had beachfront property. back Way back then, um, all of that was underwater. And uh, it left a fossil record of the way things used to be. I had another interesting experience. A long time ago, I taught at a... Um, at a training conference for PCA elders and ministers up in a Presbyterian, Canada. And we were right outside Banff National Forest. And so um, I happened to make a comment in one of my lessons. I was teaching on Joshua uh, about geography and how I love geography and I would like to know more about geology. Well, there's a fellow who was uh, one of the elders there, and he just happened to be a Canadian who spent his career in that area as an oil geologist. So he said, how about if we go take a little trip this afternoon and I'll show you a few things. So we did. Now mind you, we are probably 13,000 feet up in the air. Um, okay, above sea level. And um, uh, yeah, there wasn't that much air up there for me. Uh, so at any rate, we're, he's digging in this uh, granite And he's pulling out fossils. Saltwater fish. At one point in Earth's history, that granite block that is now 13,000, 14,000 feet above sea level was below water. Fossils are fascinating. They tell us something about the way things used to be. I, I sense that we have a verbal fossil in our culture these days. It's a, it's a relic of, of, of days gone by when things used to be different. And that fossil is, I'm thankful. Uh, over the holidays, you probably watch TV. They probably inter- uh, you know, interviewed celebrities, and they're all thankful for this or for that. And, and when I hear people say I'm thankful, maybe it's the linguist in me, I don't know. I always want to say, to whom? Because that's never mentioned. It's just kind of an impersonal, I'm thankful. Now that's better than not being thankful, yes. But it's just somewhat vague and I just want to know in particular, uh, to whom? Well, the Bible's pretty clear about that. And uh, it's clear about not only to whom do we give thanks, but why do we give thanks. And Psalm 136 is a marvelous example of that. So this morning we're going to just consider the idea of thankful, give thanks. And uh, we want to ask two questions. To whom do we give thanks and for what do we give thanks? So that our thankfulness is not vague and empty but it's very, very, very biblical, and it is personal, and it is very directed. So let's look, first of all, at that question, to whom? And let's look at just the first couple of verses, because the first three verses give us three answers to that question, to whom do we give thanks? First of all, to the Lord. Now, in all likelihood, doesn't matter what translation you have in front of you, you will notice here that Lord is in small caps, Capital L and then small cap O, small cap R, small cap D. That's an English printing tradition because what it's telling you is that the Hebrew that is underlying the word Lord is not really a word for Lord, it's God's personal name. It's the personal name of God that deep in Jewish tradition uh, nobody continued to pronounce. So uh, ancient Jews are, are reciting the Bible, and they come to the, the divine name, but they don't say the divine name. Uh, you don't, you, there's a commandment that you're not to misuse the divine name. What's the best way to not misuse it? Don't say it at all. And so what they would do is they would substitute a Hebrew word that means Lord every time they came to the divine name. And when the Hebrew Bible got translated into the Greek Old Testament, uh, the Greek word for Lord was put in for the divine name. And when the New Testament quotes passages that have the divine name, they use the Greek word for Lord as a substitute. And when uh, Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, he used the Latin word for Lord and didn't use the divine name. And when English tradition uh, picked up uh, with Wycliffe, We use the English word Lord. We don't say the divine name. So this is a very deep tradition. Uh, But that's what's underlying that small caps, L-O-R-D. It's a personal name. In other words, when you give thanks, it's not just an impersonal enterprise that you're engaging in. You are personally thankful to a person, uh, to the Lord. And that the focus on... The Old Testament references to God as Lord as opposed to God. The focus is on how close He is to us. That personal, close, covenantal relationship that we have with God. When you're giving thanks, you give thanks to the Lord. Personal God. Known by name. Very close to us. Uh, the next verse, verse 2, says that we give thanks to the God of gods. Now stay with me. This one's a little bit tricky, believe it or not. God of gods is a Hebrew superlative. What do I mean by that? A little bit of English. We say tall, and then if we want to use the comparative, we say taller. And if we want to use the superlative, we say tallest. Tallest. Uh, We were chatting before uh, the service about funky things in English, Uh, like people will say, yeah, they're my best friends, but best is the superlative. I mean, technically, you can't have many best friends. You can only have one best friend. Uh, You can have some friends that are better than others, but there's only one best friend. It's the superlative degree. Well, Hebrew doesn't have an er and an s that they add on to words. They have other words of expressing the comparative and the superlative. And the way Hebrew expresses the superlative is to put a singular noun in a special relationship with that same noun in the plural. A good example of this. The book that we as Christians know as the Song of Solomon in Hebrew is called the Song of Songs because it is the very best Song, Uh, King of Kings, the Highest King, Lord of Lords, all things that are going to be said of Jesus in the book of Revelation, Highest Lord. So now let's go back to our God of Gods. Because if we say Song of Songs means that it's the very best song, what's that presume? There are other songs out there. King of kings means the highest king, which presumes that there are other kings. I told you this was going to be a little bit tricky. God of gods, in the same way, presumes that there are other gods out there. I am a monotheist. I believe in only one God. The Bible teaches monotheism. But we have to do justice with the la- to, to, the, to the language of the Bible, God of gods, presumes in some sense there are more than one of them. In what sense? Well, if we go back just one psalm to 135.5. I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. Now that has to mean something, right? What does it mean if what it's saying is, we know that our Lord is great, our Lord is greater than all those other gods that don't exist. Well, what kind of affirmation is that, to say that God is greater than stuff that doesn't exist. I can say that about anybody in here. You are greater than all that stuff that doesn't exist. It's kind of meaningless, isn't it? Unless there are, in some sense, other gods. Let's go back to Psalm 89.9. Psalm 89.9. For who in the heavens above can compare with the Lord? It's a rhetorical question, and the expected answer is No one. Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? Now that's what the NIV says. I'm not, I forget what the ESV says, but it's probably something similar. The Hebrew translated kind of woodenly is simply, Who is like the Lord among the sons of the gods? So there are gods and there are sons of gods, kind of lower-ranking gods. Now, here's how we have to deal with this subject that's a little bit tricky. There is only one God and there are many gods. Keep in mind that words can be used in different ways. Uh, Heavenly beings is what the NIV does instead of sons of God. Why? Because that's what these Sons of gods are. They are, they're not earthly creatures. They're celestial. They're heavenly. See, there are two kinds of beings. There are celestial beings and there are earthly beings. What do we typically call celestial beings? Angels. They're, they're heavenly beings. The Bible here calls them sons of gods. So the Bible uses the word gods, God, gods, plural, for these angelic, celestial, heavenly beings. One more interesting one, Psalm 82, 6. I said you are God. You are all sons. Uh, Sorry, I said you are gods, plural. You are all sons, there's the word sons again, of the Most High. Sons of the Most High. I said you are gods. Now, some commentators take this as as a text that uses the word gods for like human rulers But I just don't think that makes any sense. Uh, Why not? Let's just take a look at uh, that verse in context. I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Notice what it goes on to say. But you will die like mere mortals. The Hebrew text could be translated, but you will die like a man. Now, what good does it say to a human being? You know what? You're going to die just like a human. Well, what el- how else would I die? What am I? I'm human. But notice what this, is te- this text is saying. It's that God says, I said to you angelic beings, you're gods. But you know, wanna, you know what? You're going to come to an end like mere mortal humans. Because there is a difference between God... And gods. God is not like any of the other gods. They're all, God is kind of like them in the sense that they're all celestial. God is celestial. God is a heavenly being. He's an Elohim. And there are other ones up there, but none of them are like God. Because he is never going to die. He's never going to perish. He's never going to experience anything like human mortality. I was trying to figure out some kind of illustration, and I always just find that illustrations for talking about God are like impossible to come up with. You know, like the Trinity, we come up with the egg, the shell and the yolk and the, and the white. Uh, but they all fall short, right? Because how can we as finite creatures come up with a perfect analogy for an infinite God? But let me give it a, sh- let me give it a shot. There's a place in London and when you go into this house, there's a wardrobe. And if you open the wardrobe, you can go through the back of that wardrobe. And when you do, you enter a place called Narnia. Now, Narnia is ruled by a tetrarchy. Tetra, archy, rulers. Narnia is ruled by a tetrarchy. There are four kings. But does anybody remember how Peter is referred to? High King. King. In fact, we have that language in one of our hymns, don't we? High King of Heaven. I'm sorry, you can never sing that the same way if you've watched or read the Narnia Chronicles. When to, To celebrate God, not just as King, but as High King. High King of Heaven. Uh, That's what our text says. God says to all the other gods, heavenly beings, angels, I said you are gods. You are all sons of Most High. Again, if God is Most High, it must mean somebody else is high. What's my point in all of this? It's simply to say that when you give thanks... You need to remember to whom you are giving thanks. Not only to the Lord, somebody who is close and personal, but you are giving thanks to the high king of heaven. The God of gods in the superlative degree. Nothing vague about that. A little bit complicated maybe, but not vague. Notice verse 3. Similarly, to the Lord of lords. Another superlative. If God is the Lord of lords, it presumes that there must be other lords. And there are. There are are earthly lords. Remember Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. There are all of these earthly rulers. There are all of these earthly lords. But then there is the Lord of the lords. And that is the God of the Bible. But not only are there these earthly lords... There are also, as we have just seen, there are heavenly lords. In the celestial realm, there are rulers up there. Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, In the heavenly realms. The heavenly realm is filled with beings. And they are not all good. Some of these powers, rulers, authorities are evil. They are forces of darkness. And if you ever scratch your head and wonder where where evil comes from in the world, it is not unrelated to the evil spiritual beings that inhabit the heavenly realm. In fact, very closely connected because it was one of them that Eve was having a conversation with. Do you ever wonder when a snake started to talk to Eve why she didn't freak out? It's because she was used to having in the garden, she was used to having... Conversations between earthly and spiritual beings, because it was all part of God's world at that point. There was harmony between heaven and earth. Ah, oh, but this one said, "Has God really said?" And there we have the entrance into of evil uh, into the earthly realm. But remember what Peter said in First Peter three twenty two. He refers to the Lord Jesus as the one who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers in submission to Him. See, in the heavenly realm there are angels, there are authorities, there are powers, there are gods, there are heavenly beings, some of them good, some of them evil, but all of them now, Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, all of them are in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Lord of the Old Testament revelation to us. That very personal God who is with us in covenant relationship day by day. So this psalm teaches us that our thanksgiving is not vaguely directed to some impersonal force in the world, or even more vaguely directed to nobody at all, our thanksgiving is directed to the Lord. The Lord who is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. He is the high king of heaven to whom we give thanks. Now now let's turn and uh, look at the answer to that second question. Uh, for what do we give thanks? And uh, verses 1 through 3 that we've taken a little look at give us two general answers and then the rest of the psalm is going to give us some more specific answers. Let's look at those two general answers in verses 1 through 3 and the first one is for he is good. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Now, this affirmation that God is good, that God's name is good, is a frequent one in the book of Psalms. We only need to go one psalm back to 135 in verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. It's a very frequent affirmation. And it's kind of a broad affirmation. God's goodness encompasses many things, in Exodus chapters 33 and 34, we get a glimpse of this. In thirty-three nineteen, uh, the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Now notice... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's goodness is is broad. It includes his mercy. It includes his compassion. Exodus 34, 6 to 7, And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, Compassionate. Gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Give thanks to the Lord, to the God of gods, to the Lord of lords, because he's good. He's merciful, he's compassionate, he's long-suffering, he's full of love, he's full of mercy, he's full of forgiveness. This is the high king of heaven to whom we give thanks for what? For he is good. And the rest of the psalm is going to go on to help define what that goodness looks like. But before we get there, the other general thing that 1 through 3 says is give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever, which is repeated. Every verse, his love endures forever, his love endures forever, his love endures forever. Apparently, God wants us to remember that his love endures forever. Now, when I say love, I'm using the, uh, the NIV. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's practice a little bit of Hebrew. Everybody say, chesed. The accent has to be up front, chesed. That's the Hebrew word. Uh, You might know this word in English form if you know about a very conservative Jewish movement called the Hasidim. Uh, They're the ones who uh, have black hats, black robes, curls. They view themselves as the ones who are, are truly faithful and loyal to God. God's chesed. There are two key components here. One of them is God's love for his people That's why the ESV or the NIV translates it as love. But the other component of God's chesed is His utter faithfulness to His covenant. His love for His people, His faithfulness to His covenant. That's what endures forever. So the ESV is pretty good. I'm not sure about the word steadfast. We don't use it all that much in English these days. But it captures chesed, His steadfast love. His faithful love. His faithful love that doesn't just endure for a moment, for a year, for a lifetime, but forever. This is what we give thanks for. We give thanks because God is good, and in particular because He has a love for us as His people that is a steadfast love. Don't we love the hymn? Oh, love that what? Will. Not let me go. That's the kind of love that God has for you as his people. It's chesed. It's a love for his people. It's a faithfulness to his covenant. It's a love that will not let you go. And on your worst days, aren't you glad that your entrance into that heavenly realm eventually is not based on how well you do but on the basis of the fact that God has a love for you in Christ that will never let you go, well, you should be as thankful on your good days as well. Because whether it's your bad days or your good days, it's all the same. It's because of God's chesed that we have the hope uh, of an eternal bliss in His presence. So in general, we give thanks to God for He is good, for His love endures forever. Well, verses 4 through 25, that's a pretty big block, right? Take a deep breath, sigh of relief. We're not going to look at this in detail. This would be a good series of sermons. These give specific reasons why we give thanks to God. And I'm just going to go over them in big picture. There are three general things, three movements here. First of all, for creation in verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 refers to God's great wonders. And those great wonders in particular are God's great wonders in creation. Verses 5 and 6 refer to God's creation of the heavens and the earth. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And verses 7 to 9 focus our attention on the great lights. Uh, That is the sun that rules the day and the moon together with the stars that rule the night. It's often the case that when the Bible wants to focus our attention on the glory of God in creation it does so by pointing us to the heavens. Uh, Psalm 24, the heavens declare the glory of God. There's something special about the glory of God in the heavens. Maybe it's because the Bible says, no one can see me and live. On a sunny day, have you ever tried to look at the sun directly for, oh, I don't know, five or six minutes? You can't do it, can you? No, because the sun has a a special analogy to the glory of God. Uh, The moon and the stars. Uh, Really, do we need all of those billions and billions and billions of stars that the naked eye can't even see? The naked eye can see on a good day, maybe 6,000. Yeah, we do need all of those billions of stars to even come close to approximating what the glory of God is like. Just an approximation. That's all it is. And so... We give thanks to God for creation, but not only for creation, also for redemption. This is verses 10 through 24. 10 through 15 talk about God redeeming us from bondage. Under the language of God redeeming ancient Israel from bondage in Egypt. And then verse 16 focuses on God delivering us through all of the perils of life. Uh, by talking about how God delivered uh, uh, Israel through that 40-year perilous period in the wilderness. And, uh, you know, some of you really feel this morning like life is a wilderness. Uh, it's, It's a hard journey. It's an arduous journey. Maybe that's because of lack of health or lack of friendship or loss of spouse or children or work or aging, all sorts of reasons uh, why the Bible likens our pilgrimage from here to the celestial city uh, as an arduous one, as as a perilous one, as a troublesome one at times. And this psalm teaches us to give thanks because God is the one who shepherds us not only when we're in the green pastures and in the, along the still waters, but even when we are walking through the deepest, darkest valley in life. He is with us. And so we give thanks to him, not only for his creation, but also for the redemption that he has provided for us uh, through his Son, Verses 17 through 25 uh, talk about God redeeming us not just from, but into abundance, into that beautiful inheritance that God gave ancient Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey. The most beautiful of all lands, says the prophet Ezekiel. A picture of the beauty and the abundance of heaven, which is ultimately our hope uh, either in one of the hymns or in one of the prayers or in one of the uh, creeds, we said something like, "Give thanks to God for all of the good things that he gives to us in this life, and remember that there's something even better waiting for us in the life to come. That is our ultimate hope and 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 thanksgiving to God keeps our eyes focused on that ultimate hope of the abundant life that Jesus came to bring. Well, verse 25 also says that we give thanks for God's providential care. Uh, The language is of God providing food, and that's a very specific reference. Uh, It's used elsewhere, Psalm 146, God upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. Psalm 147, 9, He provides food for the cattle, And for the young ravens when they call. God's providential care is not just for his people. He makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on the just. But it's not just for humans. Be they sinners or saints. God's providential care is for the ravens. For the cattle. For everything that he has made. Consider the lilies of the field. That's God's providential care for his creation something for which we give thanks. So we give thanks to God for creation, for redemption, and for, promise, uh, for providence. One final point, the last verse. The last verse answers the question to whom and for what all over again for us. Notice this time to the God of heaven. We've already seen to the Lord, the God of gods, the Lord of Lords, and now we get another reference to how we understand who God is. He's the God of heaven. When you look at this phrase, God of heaven, it's used a fair amount in the Old Testament, not all that frequently, but it's not rare. But it's almost always used in kind of an international context, where God's people are interacting with people of other faiths of other religions. It's there that we typically find this expression, the God of heaven. For example, in Ezra 1-2, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. And at that point, Cyrus was, he was the king of kings on an earthly realm. He was the most high on an earthly realm. And he says this is because the God of heaven has given him all these kingdoms. Or Nehemiah 2, 4 and 5. This is Nehemiah saying the king, and he's referring to Artaxerxes, who's a Persian king, who's a pagan king. Uh, So the Persian pagan king said to me, what is it you want, Nehemiah? And I said, oh, I better pray a quick prayer before I answer. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And, and I answered the king. Or in Daniel 2.37, your majesty, this is Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king of Babylon. Uh, Daniel says, your majesty, you pagan king of Babylon, you are The king of kings because at this stage in history the the Persians hadn't yet beat up the Babylonians and the Babylonians were the dominant world force and so their king was king of kings on an earthly level he was king over all the other kings remember that Nebuchadnezzar forgot that that was something that was given to him by the great king the most high king And he went insane, and then he came back to his sanity and he says, Oh, I realize that yeah, I might be the king of kings, but I am not the king of kings. There's one who is higher than I. The heavenly king reigns over everything. Uh, So, you, your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. To whom do we give thanks? To the Lord, close and personal. To the God of gods, the supreme, most high in the heavenly realm. To the Lord of lords, the one who is in control of not only the heavenly realm, but also to the earthly realm. To the God of heaven. And why? Notice how the psalm ends. For his steadfast love endures forever. Well, that's a long way to ask a simple question. Your own thanksgiving, your own thankfulness, is it a fossil? Is it an indicator of the way things used to be in your life? I'm not talking about our culture in general now. Let's bring it home. Is it an indicator of the way things used to be? When there was that personal, robust, vibrant thanksgiving to somebody that you knew as Lord, God of gods, King of kings, high King of heaven. Or has it become a fossil where the language is all there, but the heart is no longer in it? Uh, All the language has, it's like looking at a bunch of fossils in a museum. Beautiful in their own right, but indicating the way things used to be. And not the way things presently are. May the Holy Spirit write this word on our hearts. So that our thanksgiving is not a fossil. But it's biblical. It is to the Lord. The God of gods, the Lord of lords, the high King of heaven, because he is good and his love endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. High King of heaven, the one who has won our victory for us, King of kings, Lord of lords, God of gods, to you we give thanks for your glory in creation, your glory in redemption, your glory in providence. We give thanks because you are good. We give thanks because your steadfast love for us as your people endures forever and ever. Amen. Amen.